This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Rebecca Huntley, and we begin this brand new year of the History Listen in the thrall of an enigmatic mountain in northeastern Victoria. From Melbourne, travel a couple of hours up the highway and then east onto Snow Road. You'll start to climb, the temperature will drop, and slowly, standing in solitary grandeur, Mount Buffalo will come into view. Producer Miyuki Okiranta has always been curious about Buffalo, and she's not the only one. In the mid-1800s, gold initially brought diggers to the valleys and rivers below Buffalo, but it was the mountain itself that this family, and in particular, the young Alice Manfield, stayed for. You can call me Guide Alice, pioneer, naturalist, writer and mountain guide. Alice of the Mountain. So in the foreground, we have a little pathway, a a rough track with some some cattle and a cart, a little uh, rustic cottage and a bit of a water mill. Stephanie Laveau, environmental sociologist at the University of Melbourne, is describing one of the first European depictions of the Buffalo Ranges the mountains Alice called home. It's an oil painting by Nicolas Chevalier from 1864. This gives way in the mid-ground to uh, some classic dense Australian bush and further in the background then the the ranges of Mount Buffalo, the furthest of which are covered in uh, snowy peaks. Artists and travel riders coming back from the gold fields ushered in the romantic movement that shifted our ideas of the bush from a barren wasteland to something alluring, an invitation for adventure. And it's really interesting the way that the light plays on this picture, the snow-capped peaks, the light hitting that at the times of used to imply, you know, godliness or, or paradise. But then also some sort of sh- sense of shadowiness around the sides here in the, in the bushland. I'm seeing that sort of expression of awe, that expression of sort of the spiritual, uh, but also that slight sense of a little bit of unease still. My first trip up to Buffalo, Mount Buffalo, and heading to see Mandy Munro, who is a self-confessed reincarnation of Guide Alice. She was a bit like me in that aspect. She was a go-getter. She'd always been in the company of men. She was one of eight. Um, she was the first alpine guide on the mountain. And I eventually ended up working on the mountain for a long time, doing adventure guiding. Mandy Munro bought the first dwelling the Manfields built at the foot of the mountain, the Buffalo Falls Temperance Hotel, though she didn't know it at the time. And it wasn't until we were able to sort through the shearing shed that I began to unearth all of this history of the Manfields. So I've also got a gorgeous little card here. The Buffalo Falls House via Paul This house is situated... This house is situated by the Eurobin Falls Ladies Baths and other picturesque places. This well-established house has been accommodating tourists for the past 25 years. Beautiful bathing, shooting, fishing, tennis and piano. For four particulars, write to oldest established house. 
Miss Manfield, manageress. The house was in an ill state of disrepair. It was too far gone to, to do anything about it. So we set about pulling all the doors, windows, architraves, skirting boards, chattels, goods and fittings that we'd, we could salvage from the old Buffalo Falls Temperance Hotel and put them in place in the new house. So we're over the road, uh, just near Manfield's track, uh, close to the Robin Creek waters and you can hear the sound of the babbling brook that inspired Percy Granger. Under the shade of these elms he would have sat here over a hundred years ago. Australian composer Percy Granger was an avid walker. We called him the jogging pianist. Now I haven't found the exact composition inspired by this babbling brook but I can see why he chose this spot in the shadow of Buffalo. Oh, look at that. That's where I'm going. That's where you're going. <laughs> Up the mountain to meet a descendant of Alice. That's a lovely wombat poo. Yeah. Oh, you can identify wombat poo. <laughs> Hi. Hello. How's the walk? Oh, big long. Oh, right. What are you doing, Story? Or on this lovely woman? Oh, I'm Guide Alice's granddaughter. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Actually, it's really appropriate that it should be three women who stop us uh, here at this point. Yeah, and to think that you've walked. How many? Have you walked the 14 k's? Yeah. 15 k's uphill. Yes. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's massive. It's beautiful, though. <laughs> feeling a bit sore. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of your day. See ya. See ya. On a clear day, you can see Kosciuszko's Peak, 160 kilometres to the east. On other days like today, the weather's in ribbons. Snow up top, rain on the way down, sunshine below. It's late spring, and Anne Shannon, granddaughter of Alice Manfield, is walking with me tracks the Tangwarang walked long before gold was found in these valleys. Where's the Buckland Valley? The Buckland Valley should be around that way, I think. Uh -huh. And that's where the Buckland riots occurred and where James Manfield started gold mining here. And evidently he made a, a bit of money and that's how he managed to build the Buffalo House. The hotel opened in 1890. Just a few years prior, Vic Railways extended the tracks to the neighbouring town of Myrtleford, and now Buffalo was only a train ride away, though still eight hours from Melbourne. But the Manfields weren't the only ones that saw a mountain of opportunity. The Westons were an early guiding family, and... There was competition with the Carlisles, who had a liquor licence. The Carlisles uh, attracted a certain clientele. The Temperance Hotel attracted the more often high society uh, type people. So that caused a bit of resentment. The Manfields were seen as kind of snobbish, a bit distant. I suspect they were just really focused on their hard work. They could see there was an opportunity there and they were going to tap it. As people moved, started to move through the landscapes for a more, I suppose, leisurely purpose, as opposed to for, you know, working in the landscape, 
Um, we increasingly see these kinds of uh, experiences being sought. People trying to experience for themselves this kind of drama of nature. My name is Michelle Doherty, I'm the Ranger Team Leader at Mount Buffalo National Park and we're at the Oval which is Australia's highest cricket ground. Uh, it's right on the edge of the gorge, it's surrounded by beautiful snowgarn woodland and it's just a nice place for families to hang out up here. Buffalo is part of the Australian Alps but not connected to the main range. From where Michelle and I are standing, about 1,400 metres elevation, a layer of sedimentary rock rose two kilometres above us and eroded over time to reveal rough granite tours, huge weathered blocks that appear to teeter on the cliff edges. But Buffalo isn't only a geological abnormality. We're only just at the very beginning of our wildflower season, but we've got some quinsia that's flowering. And across the plateau now, we're... We're going from purple colours and yellow colours. Some things are really obvious because they're big, like the wombats and what they leave behind, but we get lots of butterflies, and there's some butterflies that are just specific to this area. And flame robins, pilot birds, and crescent honey eaters that tend not to visit the valleys. I think at the time when she was up here, buffalo was a fairly new discovery for the people of Victoria. It was like a little bait. It was hanging there as a temptation for people to think, oh, that looks amazing, I'd love to go and see it, and look for somebody who was knowledgeable and passionate about this area. And, you know, Alice was, a, was an obvious choice. Born in 1878, Alice was about 12 years old when the Temperance Hotel was built. Reflecting on that time in an article she wrote for the Age newspaper in 1936, she says... We were not in our teens when my brother William and I first climbed the mountain, the beauties and attractions of which we had so often heard our father describe to others. From then on, mountain climbing and the stillness of the mountaintop seemed to get a hold upon me. And at every opportunity, I would accompany my brothers when they were guiding tourists who were mountain climbing. So Guide Alice ends up hanging out every day with her father and her brothers and hitching buggies. They're providing accommodation and guiding services for the local tourists and the wealthy from Melbourne. And her father blazed a, a northern approach from the Eurobin Valley up the mountain. That would have been still a lengthy process of about six hours on horseback. Being relatively flat on the top, once they actually got up here, with the snowgrass plains and the little valleys and nooks and crannies around the plateau, on horseback you could explore all sorts of places. Can you imagine, like, Granny being rough and ready out in the bush where there are no toilets or anything and living in tents, to hobnobbing with high society? So it must have been incredibly adaptable, whatever you say. She would have mixed with the likes of Percy Granger, Arthur Streeton, Nicholas Chevalier, Nicholas Kerr, the Symes of Melbourne. Lord Hopeton, Lord Lamington, Baron von Mueller and others. Sir John Monash claimed that his navigational skills were set from Guide Alice on that mountain there, so that was quite remarkable. My dear Guide Alice, 
You may believe me when I say that I treasure greatly the memories of the many happy days I spent on the buffalo in company of your father and the members of your family. You have doubtless not forgotten that George Farlow and I were among the very first visitors ever to stay at your house at the foot of the mount, which we climbed with the aid of pack horses. I hope in the near future to be able to take another trip, and I shall make a point of looking you up. Yours very sincerely, John Monash. As the business grew, the Manfields established a chalet on the mountain in 1902 and later erected the more modest Granny's Place. And Guy Ellis ended up running that for quite some time after her father basically handed it over to her and her brother. OK, notice the walking stick. <laughs> Actually, maybe I should pose. Uh, here we go. Uh, so this is a photo of Alice in her woolen guiding suit. The closest thing I can think of is, is jodhpurs. Well, from the photos I've seen, she looked like a fairly tall, slim woman. Um, and with her pantsuit, it was quite close-fitting, so that was the, the reveal back in the days that women didn't wear those pants because it revealed the shape of their body. She wears a great big scarf around her neck and a beautiful woolen hat. She's got a, a walking stick. But for, for what she enjoyed up here, the pantsuit was the most practical and comfortable thing for her to wear. To me that spoke of a certain creativity and inventiveness as well as a certain uh, self-awareness and, and sort of rebellion against the, the cultural norms of the time as to how a woman should present herself. I don't give a tuppence what people think. She would have been seen as quite a woman of madness, actually. Today we call it entrepreneurship. She named herself Guide Alice. Guide first, Alice second, an expert, a character, a tourist attraction. I thought it was really interesting, one of the accounts that I was reading about Alison and her guiding work, it talked about her as a calming influence, I think those were the words, uh, for the, the guests that she escorted. This comes into I suppose one of the key elements of romantic attitudes to nature is about the sublime. The sublime very much was about pleasure, but it was a pleasure derived from a slight frisson of fear, if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, some people talk about it as sort of controlled terror, <laughs> you know, sheer cliff faces, uh, you know, vast mountaintop views, uh, you know, torrents of water, whether that be waterfalls or raging seas. Uh, and so, in a way, she's curating an experience for you. I noticed that someone referred to the Manfields as being God-botherers, but they weren't uh, like fundamentalists or extremists or anything. The Manfields were, not strictly, Methodist. When Alice married late at 40, she fell in love with a fellow ranger, of course, John, a Catholic. But how could you not be spiritual in a place like this? P.S. What about the photos of the lyrebird's nest? How did they turn out? I've got this book. It's really rare. What's the book? The book is The Lyrebirds of Mount Buffalo, and it's uh, a book that Guide Alice published, and there's very few of them around. The Lyrebirds of Mount Buffalo was published in 1924. 
To the best of my belief, I am the first to secure live photographs of our famous Australian lyrebird. Do you think this would have been one of the spots? Oh, absolutely. I think she was just living on the mountain. She'd know every square metre of it, just about. Should we listen for one? I'm hearing something in the valley. That's an aerial calling there. Uh-huh. We can hear um, Rufus Whistlers. Grey Fantails. More Rufus Whistlers up here. Tree Creeper, white-throated tree creeper. Yellow-faced honey eater. And a satin flycatcher is in the distance. That's the Oriole again. My name's Clyde O'Donnell. Um, I've been a wildlife photographer for many years. Uh, in the summer I do forest firefighting. And then later I worked at Mount Buffalo Chalet as the, the guide because I had the, the knowledge and the background of uh, the environment up there. Across the valley from Buffalo, Clyde has nurtured his property into a luscious mix of non-Indigenous plants he's learnt about in his guiding travels and this endemic apple box and peppermint eucalypt forest. There's regularly lyrebirds on this track. Would you only know that by sound, by sight? Well, a couple of ways. They, they often scratch on the ground and leave quite a, an impression where their big claws are scratching looking for food. Of course, the call is very distinct. It's very, very loud. Um, they have a they have a repertoire where they mimic many different birds um, in succession. They mimic, say, the kookaburra, the magpie, the karawong, the thrush, uh, and the smaller birds in succession. Um, and then, quite often, it will go back to its own call, which is a repetitive croaking. And you can often hear them in the distance. They want a lot of cover, uh, a lot of food, uh, moisture. And cover because they're fairly shy creatures. They are, they are shy. They get used to humans around uh, national parks and camping grounds, but other than that, they are a fairly shy bird. In fact, if we disturb one today, it'll, it'll let out its alarm call straight away. It'll give a screech, and that's another very distinct sound that the lyrebird makes. With her large, cumbersome 1920s-era camera, Alice was able to capture the first-ever portrait of a male superb lyrebird in full array. Renowned naturalist Charles Barrett notes in his introduction to her book. Many of us who hunt with a camera have tried, year after year in nesting time, to add the male lyrebird to our bag, and we have always failed. This miniature portfolio is a pioneer in a wide realm. Our wonder birds of the hills and fern gullies now have their own picture record, at least one family of them. What are some of the strategies that you use as a photographer? Uh, well, it's still an issue with lighting when you're a photographer for, for birds, of course, so you've got to uh, have your equipment adjusted accordingly long before you see the bird, ideally. Um, you can hear the bird in the background usually, so that gives you a, a clue when you're approaching it. Sometimes you could wait for them to hop up on a log if you can predetermine their, their movements, which often you can. Um, and just being very patient and uh, sometimes you, you would fail, but sometimes you would be successful and then it's very rewarding when you get a great photo of a live bird. Mm -hmm. 
Do you think Alice did a lot for the conservation of lyrebirds on buffalo? She did because, yes, with, particularly with her book, she, she basically opened people's eyes to this amazing bird that was living up in the, in the mountains, uh, in the forest, and, and I guess she described how it could mimic other birds. I did not hide myself, but sat in full view of the bird, hoping that, in time, she would get used to the sight of me. I carried out this plan on several mornings and evenings, uttering at each visit, Mopoke! The call of the Mopoke. At last the bird came shyly to meet me and offered a greeting by trying to mimic my call. Yes, yeah, she would have certainly um, created a, an interest very early on for that particular bird. To my great joy, I found I had secured her friendship. At last my chance came and I snapped the photograph. The mentality of people in the 1800s was everything was up for grabs. And I know a lot of lyrebirds were killed for their feathers for women's fashion. And she was lured by many people into trying to secure eggs for museums, and which she declined. What I find really fascinating about all of the people back in that period before this became a national park in 1898 is that so many people fell in love with this place and they worked hard to get it protected and looked after. I don't think it's any coincidence that this place, Mount Buffalo, was uh, valued as a tourism place and was one of the first national parks to be established in southeastern Australia. So in 1998, when Victorians celebrated the milestone of one of our first national parks reaching its centenary, we developed the Gorge Heritage Walk in honour of Guide Alice and we did a reenactment up at the chalet and I actually was dressed up to be Guide Alice. I wasn't in the pantsuit, I was in a nice frock, but um, yeah, that was pretty special. Is that the chalet I see there? Yep, that's the chalet up there. So that's the government chalet? Yes. Yeah. I suppose the fully on tourism probably only lasted about 20 years. When the road opened, it was a mixed blessing. I well remember the opening of the road in 1908. Among many honours bestowed on me that eventful day was holding the ribbon at the opening. There's a photograph of the opening of the Buffalo Road and at one end of the tape that is about to be cut, there's Thomas Bent, the Premier of Victoria, holding the ribbon. But what interested me at the other end is Alice, Guide Alice. When I read a description of this photograph, it mentioned all these men, including people we'd never heard of before or since, uh, and completely ignores Guide Alice. There was not one woman's name. There was a lot of talk about how tourism would really impact the area. So the government started this notion that a chalet should be built at the top of a mountain. So they didn't mean to put it in competition with the Manfields and the Carlisles, but it happened anyway. So they proceeded in 1910 to, to build that chalet. Well, the chalet, it, it was beautiful, but it was also like a big kind of juggernaut shifting the the man fields aside. 
The Mount Buffalo Chalet is a stately portrait of early 20th century Australian grandeur. A large dining room flanked by wings and surrounded by manicured gardens. The servants' quarters out the back. Inside, wall-to-wall timber panelling, reminiscent of a train carriage. Vic Railways took over the chalet from 1920 to 1930 and ushered in the age of the Mountain Hotel. There is a lovely contrast there, isn't there, between the chalet for the you know, more well-to-do, uh, who don't want to be necessarily inconvenienced, uh, <laughs> and the, the shack that the Manfield family had up there uh, for those who were willing to rough it a bit more. And then, uh, they, after various negotiations, they were given an area that's quite some distance away, I don't know, maybe a kilometre. They only had a lease for about five years there and that's when they really had to leave. So what we got left with was effectively the chalet. Now, a ghostly mammoth on a mountain. Teacups gathering dust in the dining room. Due to financial difficulties, the chalet was closed more than a decade ago, as if stopped in time. And no one knows if or when it'll open again. I've noticed that it's only the keen naturalists and bushwalkers and have really nurtured the place a lot. Hello. <laughs> More women walkers. Three women walkers have just walked past us. Back to the chalet. Yes, back to the chalet. Jolly good. <laughs> nice hot cup to me. Devonshire tea and scones. Oh yes, sounds lovely. I know Alice really wanted to hold on to her guiding role and she wrote letters, you know, after the road was open and the chalet was built, saying that the tourists needed a good guide who really understood the mountain. Of course, the other pull on Alice was that her husband was not from the area. He was from the Mallee. And I understand he didn't really take to the, the mountain life. In the 1930s, everything changed. Guide Alice gave up guiding. Um, she had a family and they moved to Wangaratta. Towards the end of her life, I think Alice had lost her role in society and one day Mum went to visit her and couldn't find her. This is um, at her house in Wodonga. People were looking for her and and so eventually Mum said, I think we should look at, up at Mount Buffalo. And they found her up there uh, in the bush. Oh, this is the end of the walk. Oh, I feel on a real high now. <laughs> I mean, if I was marketing Mount Buffalo, I would say it just really doesn't get any better than this. Not, and I've lived on the Sunshine Coast, so I understand about beautiful one day, perfect the next, but this is just divine all the time. <laughs> oh, that might be, yeah. <laughs> is that your tagline? Yeah, that's my tagline. The future of Australia may not be lightly dismissed by judgment upon her money-earning folk of today. Mr Granger, it's time to set off. The scenery, the animal life, the air and so on of the country is wondrously tender, pure, high-souled, aloof, delicate, refined. Sooner or later, its darling influences must tell and we will get weird, lovable, ravishing, highly unworldly human showings. 
the old mount will claim you, as it did me. As I put this program together, fires coursed through the Alpine region, and now Buffalo itself is burning. I spoke with Mandy Munro. She lives at the base of the mountain and is facing fires on all sides, some just a few kilometres away. And she said, in her matter-of-fact way, this is what normal is now, and what normal will be. So I find myself asking, how do we take care of our country in this new normal? Thanks for listening. Guide Alice was produced by Miyuki Yokiranta. The sound engineer was Matthew Crawford. And if you want to see a photo of the entrepreneurial young Alice in her controversial pantsuit, love a pantsuit, head to our website. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Join me again next time on The History Listen. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.